Hey everybody, it's Jay here, and I am doing the redone introduction, reintroduction, if you would be so kind, uh, for principle number nine, continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. So I wasn't on this original episode, I believe it was Andy Clef, Troy Lightfoot, and uh, the gift man himself, but they hit on a lot of things that uh, as many years as we are on from that original episode, they still resonate. The idea of painting yourself into a corner because not following good technical practices. If you increase quality, you increase productivity. That was one of the Gifford lead-in quotes from Mr. Deming. Still resonant. The idea of developing software craftsmanship and pairing to help spread knowledge. All these things, none of these have changed. And I would actually argue that in today's world, in the, in the post-COVID employment landscape, this principle becomes more important than ever. Writing good code when you are distributed, when you're not sitting next to someone, when you're not necessarily in the same building, office, uh, time zone, continent becomes really, really important. The uh, ability to write good code, to utilize good emergent architecture and good design this becomes almost table stakes as we go forward. Uh, the idea that Agile is just processes and tools and structure and frameworks, I think we've kind of just shot that thing in the butt, right? We don't need to talk about that anymore. It all comes down to technical practices. It comes down to extreme programming. Uh, we're hearing terms like DevOps, DevSecOps, BizDevSecOps, whatever the hell you want to call it. All these things boil down to you need to follow good practices. You need to create quality code because not only will it provide value now, it will provide long-running value because it avoids painting you into a corner. It gives you more um, the ability to change. It gives you more adaptability. All the things that we talk about and all these different principles, uh, code quality, technical excellence, I would argue this is probably one of, if not the most important principles from the Agile Manifesto. So if you're new and you haven't heard this episode before, or if you're just joining us, we uh, we hope you enjoy it and we enjoy the rest of the series. Uh, sit back and enjoy and uh, we will chat again soon. Hi, this is Martin Fowler and you're listening to the Agile Uprising. Welcome to the ninth episode of 12 Agile Principles of Christmas. Tonight, I'm excited to have with me Troy and Scramando. These are code names. Um, where we talk about continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. For you guys, why, why is this principle important? What does it mean to you? Troy, you're up. Well... I worked on a product one time where the team didn't adhere to this and they developed a bunch of features. And after about six months, six to nine months, every new feature or enhancement, they just basically couldn't do it anymore. So <laughs> they had to rewrite almost everything <laughs> from scratch. So that actually happened. <laughs> um, and because they didn't follow this uh, principle number nine, um, so when I read this, I'm thinking about 
um, good object oriented design principles, you know, is one of them. Um, it's like the solid principles from Robert Martin, uh, things like automated testing, things like pairing, you know, having two minds work on one problem and, and building in quality from the beginning instead of finding it later, finding problems later. So to me, it kind of encompasses a lot of different um, aspects of quality. Well, what do you think, James? Um, so, so for me, with, with looking at um, good, solid technical foundations for products, I mean, Deming said it kind of best, and I, I use this quote to death, um, especially in, the, in my metrics talk, but improving quality, you automatically improve productivity from W. Edward Deming. Building in quality first just sets the foundation for speed. If we're continuously looking at remediating bugs, you know, it it's ultimately going to hurt the throughput of our system. So, and when I talk about it, <clears throat> Troy, to a lot of, you know, what you've already kind of highlighted is it, it is about a lot of those technical excellence practices that, you know, we, we've probably lost. And uh, since XP is kind of, died in the States, but very alive in Europe. So if we could find some of the technical excellence and bring it back, I think we would be all in a better spot. I mean, I can, from a sitting down with a, a developer, and we were going through um, my metrics talk, we were talking about, so, you know, what's holding you back from being able to deliver, you know, a potentially shippable story to your product owner in three to five days? And you know, this is a really legacy system. So, you know, he's he's like, well, with the amount of varying code, ways that, that we've written code and objects are named, I literally probably spend three days reading the code just to get comfortable enough with making that change. So just getting into some of those clean coding practices are essential for just simple day-to-day cleanly or ability to even work with the code that you're, you're working with. And I know as a developer, um, when I was doing a lot of .NET development in the past, if I couldn't physically read the name of what a class or a method was uh, and understand it sort of with some logical naming, I would get so upset because like, I have to read this every day. And so getting into some of those aspects of it, it's like, guys, this is just, good stuff like that we need to be doing. Right. And, and both of you touched on that anti-pattern of uh, ignoring design excellence kills the project down the line. You, you hit on it, Troy. Eventually you get to some point where the drag is so great you can't deliver frequently enough. How do you get there? Uh, you know, the, the, the Christmas equivalent is nine ladies dancing on this. And it reminds me of ballet and, and how people go through the equivalent of apprenticeship at a young age to journeyman and master. So wh- what does this mean as coaches, as team members? How do you develop this craftsmanship? Well, I can start off by saying um, one of the questions you said was, how do you get there? And I thought, I actually thought you meant, how do you get to a point where it, it's difficult to change things? So I, I kind of 
heard the question wrong. So actually, I'd like to talk about that for like one second. So yeah, go for it. In this in this particular example, the business was so focused on timelines and just getting things to meet a timeline and out the door, and the team really was just doing what they thought their job was was to meet timelines and deliver features. And because of that, they really weren't taking the time to, you know, do things uh, using good, obviously good object oriented principles and, um, and they weren't pairing and it was, you know, the testing was very minimal and everyone was happy because they were getting things, you know, quote unquote done. And everyone was not so happy later on when they couldn't change anything. And every time they changed anything, everything broke for the most part. <laughs> so uh, that's an example of how do you get there? Well, not focusing on it and focusing on other things. You know, that's kind of one way of how do you get there. As far as how do you get to um, a point where you are paying attention to good design and learning how to do it, um, I would say pairing with people and the team or even on other teams, if you're doing some kind of dynamic reteaming where they have a certain level of um, craftsmanship and a certain level of skill that you can learn from. So I can give you an example. So there was a team I was working with where one person was an Android developer and um, this person was really struggling. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but let's just say they were struggling. Okay. <laughs> and um, I had someone else in the organization that was on a different team that was a backend Java developer that never worked on Android before. And this was an Android product that, that the teams were working on. So it was my idea to kind of do some dynamic reteaming and bring this uh, backend Java developer who was very skilled at uh, good, good coding principles, right? Clean code. So I said, hey, why don't you come to this team? I got the approval from the business and um, for the money for it. And so that person joined the team. And what they did was that backend Java developer paired with the Android developer on Android features okay, for six months straight. And that's basically all they did. They just worked on that those two things together. And by the end of that six months, the Android developer went from really, really struggling to, in my opinion, being the best Android developer they had. And the Java developer became a good, pretty good Android developer as well. So he was able to really kind of start leading that project. So um, pretty much <laughs> you got two developers from that, from pairing people up with different skill sets and different levels of ability when it comes to that good design. And one person learns how to be a good developer. The other person learns a new skill. And now you've really increased what you're uh, company, your teams and your company is able to do. So to me, that's an example of one way. How do you get there? What do you think, Gene? What a, what a great story. You know, be, both of those team members learning new tools, learning how to keep those tools sharp. How do you increase overall competence of a team, the skill set over time and still deliver value? Increasing the team skill set and retaining the ability to deliver value. I mean, there's a, there's a tricky balance to that. And some of that is allowing space. So when you start looking at the utilization mindset that most organizations have, especially early on in their agile adoption, they want everybody a utilized, you know, to a hundred percent. 
how do we get that eight hour day out of our every resource? That's that's the moniker. I, I literally heard that in a retrospective last week. And you, know, you have to step back and, and go, man, 100 percent. It's not going to be it's not realistic for the level of commitment that you need to evolve your organization. There has to be that ability for slack time. So finding ways to plan accordingly and allow slack time for people to learn and create an environment where they can pair, especially when it's it's not a mandated thing. So a couple things that we've done, we, you know, I, a lot of the things that I teach teams uh, and organizations, when we look at planning, we like to get them looking at a quarterly rolling plan. Um, you know, you're planning for a quarter. So we like to plan for 12 weeks. So the first three weeks we know a lot about the next three weeks, we're probably going to change. And then there's that week at the end of that. And what I like to do is offer up to the teams and, and get the leadership focused on it, but giving that two to three days um, where teams have the ability to do lab days where they can, you know, get together and maybe the organization comes up with some kind of problem and, you know, the teams are allowed to go solve that program or programmatically with like whatever tools they want or uh, for teams to cross skill and work on those to start building some of those entry-level skills. Um, but a lot of it, so like there, there's an opportunity for learning. There's an opportunity for cross-platforming that's built into the system. I mean, pairing ideally is, is pairing and mobbing are probably some of the two best ways to kind of learn those skills. I know as, as a developer coming out of, um, you know, I, I didn't go into a development background, like coming out of school, I started running printing presses in West Virginia instead of, you know, getting into my development degree or using the, my degree, um, that I earned. So when I had stepped into programming, I was very new and junior and novice. I spent a lot of time working with senior to mid-level developers and, and watching them code and asking them why they pattern things that way. Um, and then I, at home, I would go through basically practice. Like we talk about in martial arts, we talk about the katas and series of moves. Um, I think that a lot of this repetitive kind of ways of solving problems or structuring code or, or habits. So being able to learn from somebody that's more experienced in their patterns and motions and movements through uh, code generally is those baby steps. So you have to, in order to do that, it, it becomes about repetitiveness. It becomes about, and continue to get that muscle memory. It comes to, it comes about providing people with that time, that slack in the system, either during sprints or creating space after um, sprints to create, you know, a, a basically a buffer, a learning buffer, because if you're continuously hammering the sprint after sprint after sprint, you're not creating an area where they can learn and grow. And, and I think that applies at any level, apprentice, journeyman, or master. So here's a toss-up question. When we re-team or someone new joins the team, what have you found to be good onboarding that ensures that these new members to the team understand or are able to uh, apply this principle that continuous attention to technical excellence enhances our agility. 
would have worked. Uh, Colleen Johnson put a post out on the the Uprising uh, Discourse channel early on about the basically it was an exercise doing a a skills radar, if you will. So we have a new product. We want to understand where you're at in the continuum of um, your development journey. So with every team now that we, we've stood up, I like to do this skills radar for here's the product. Here's all the skills that we need to suit this product. You're a new developer coming in. We want you to look at the skills radar. It's very open to everybody. And it's like, here are all the people on the team with skills. And this is where they're at in their journey with this language, with this tool set. Where do you fit into this mesh with your skill sets? And then look where we have overlaps. And then, you know, start to do some networking between those people to start finding who they could potentially match, like, be somebody they could pair up with that may be higher skilled in Java than they are. Um, or like they potentially have skills that, you know, are something that that person has interest in and they can start talking about that and striking up a conversation. So it, it helps them and helps the team realize, all right, we have a new person. Here's where their skill sets lie. I can then also as a team member practice some techniques around inviting them in um, it's something that I can then share some shared nerdiness with, like we're both familiar with SQL. This is something that we can talk about and talk shop and, you know, you may not be as proficient or I am, or you may be higher proficient. Um, and it's just been a, a kind of a good way to onboard people. Um, and then I like to keep a list of smells. So <laughs> where are things in coat? So, so the list of smells. So, like every every company builds up certain amount of technical debt through you know the the project madness. Um, so, where are those smells in the code base? That if I'm bringing in a new Java developer, where are some big areas of code that I'm going to necessarily want to be like, look, here's some really bad stuff that's you're going to come in running in here. So, if if you pull a task that's going to touch maybe this class or method. Um, Grab one of the grab one of the other guys because we know that this is a this is a bad zone. This is like the toxic waste field that you're going to be wading through, um, and so instead of you spending like it, it just provides like a it's like that light vest. <laughs> to, to Welcome help. to the team. Here's the radioactive swamp. I love it. <laughs> Here, it, I mean it, it. But you tie a rope around their waist so you can pull them back. Exactly. It's like, oh, shoot, you just pulled the radioactive swamp card. So, yeah, good luck with that. No, we need to help you. Yeah, that's great. So, so James, you talked a little bit about personal repetition to build muscle skills. I'm curious, maybe I'll toss this over to you, Troy. Where does automation of repetitive work fit into your view of technical excellence and, and enhancing agility? Are you talking about like test automation? Any repetitive job. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, does how does that fit into it? So, yeah, test, test automation's a big one. Mm -hmm. um, deployment, continuous integration, um, software release notes. Take your pick. Sure. Things that are done over and over again. Um, where does that fit into the technical excellence spectrum? 
Well, if we, as you're coaching, if we want to, I mean, to me, the biggest one to start with is continuous integration. I've seen that teams that haven't used continuous integration. And then when they start using it and they start getting good at kind of stopping the line and fixing the problems as soon as they see them. I mean, I'm talking about like exponential quality increase <laughs> just in my opinion. I don't have like numbers to, to back up the word exponential, but I would say it's a greatly increased, you know, um, one, the quality and amount of work they're even able to finish, uh, even productivity goes up as well. So quality and productivity. So just by automating that integration is, um, that's like the first step in my opinion. Um, I kind of personally, I feel it's a prerequisite to, um, a good agile team is having that continuous integration. Um, feedback cycles. Yeah. So that's, um, that's something. And I, I actually wanted to jump back real quick, if you don't mind to talk about utilization for a second. So if you're not familiar with, um, Tom Ryderson's, um, Ryderson effective uh, capacity utilization, uh, maybe I, we could put a link to it in the show notes. Um, maybe I can put a link to a chart, but it's basically showing that chart shows that the queue sizes go up as uh, utilization goes up. So it's something to think about where once you get over about 70% or so of utilization, it starts to pretty much go up like a straight line of the queue size. So it's something to think about when it comes to sprint planning or when if you're not using scrums, any kind of, are we just going to keep people busy or are we going to give them that slack? And James, you talked about um, you know different ways of having slack on a team. One way is... Uh, in my experience, something I coach is Slack. Like there's an XP practice called Slack, which is basically once a sprint or once an iteration in XP, they have the iterations that what you would do is um, each team member would assign themselves one task. And that task could be, it's time box, but it could be something like, we're going to use this time and I'm going to refactor something that I feel like needs to be refactored in the system, right? Or it could be, I'm going to use this time to learn about something new. And then when I learn about it, at the retro, I'm going to show people what I learned and m maybe open that up to, for other people to pair with me to learn more about it, stuff like that, right? So that's kind of one. Uh, for scaling, I know SAFE is the big, you know, hot topic in a lot of Agile areas. So SAFE does have an innovation and planning kind of sprint that's dedicated for a lot of this stuff. And I actually, I actually think that's a pretty cool thing about SAFE um, is that time, setting aside a special time for doing a lot of this stuff, you know. Um, so that's that. I wanted to give you a shout out, Andy, actually, because we were talking a little bit before this podcast about something that I do in my coaching that I'm a big believer in and it, it goes hand in hand with James and what you were saying. I think it's just another way to facilitate it. Uh, so maybe Andy, if you want to link your blog post, but I can explain it and then you can jump in if you want. But what you do is you have, uh, the team members, you ask them to like so this is something maybe a scrum master would do or a coach or anybody, but you would ask them, okay, can you tell me what your skill sets are in, in when it comes to technical skills, uh, process, how much you know about different processes, whether it's scrum, whether it's pairing, that's, that is a type of process, right? Mobbing and, and like uh, soft skills. And you kind of get a collection of all the different skills and the different skill levels as well. So are you a journeyman or your apprentice or your master? And you create a matrix of these things. And then you say, well, um, which one of these skills do you want to learn and at what kind of level? So for instance, if I'm a front-end developer and I want to learn how to be a back-end developer, maybe I don't want to be a pro at it. I just want to know enough to be able to work on it, right? So maybe I would put like um, apprentice would be my 
wait, apprentice journeyman master, right? So, yeah. um, <clears throat> so journeyman might be like my kind of ideal state for that one. And you kind of label now or future. Uh, and so I'll, I'll, it's kind of hard for me to explain without seeing a visual of it. So we can, we can definitely link that. But then yeah, what I do is I say, okay, for the next six months, what do you guys feel as a team that you need to prioritize to become a high performing team? And whether that's related to the project, whether that's related to ongoing, if you know this team is going to stay together for a long time, you just know you need these skills to improve and you let them prioritize it and them self empower it. And then if there's skills that are lacking on the team, somebody like a scrum master or somebody can go take that to management and say, okay, maybe we need to get some more official training, which we need a budget for or something like that, you know? So yeah, coming up that's with so a powerful. Go ahead, Andy. I, I, I think that's so powerful. Um, we talk about self-organizing, self-managing, and I want to add in self-learning teams. Right. It's really the best way to develop that bench strength, that ability to respond quickly to whatever shows up. Well, we're coming up on time. So, so one of the things we like to do as close out is, okay, guys, if we're going to redo the carol on the ninth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. God, it's a good thing I'm coaching because I can't sing. Um, <laughs> On the on the ninth day of Agile, my coach gave to me, James, over to you. Nine patterns for technical health for our teams. Maybe. <laughs> Such com- total commitment to that one. <laughs> Troy, Troy, what do you got? Nine episodes of Uncle Bob's Clean Coder videos. Oh, yes. Who's that? That's what I would give. That's what I would on want. On the ninth day. And there's a... Li- and there's at least nine. Yes. There's at least nine. There's more, but we're going to go with nine because that's, that's the girl. On the ninth day of well, your mission, uh, on the, give us the ni- show notes, man. Nine. All nine of them. All right. Show notes. I'm going to recommend the nine. Okay. Yeah. It's a little, <laughs> little heavy homework on you. Uh, so for, for me, I'll round this out and then we'll close this out. On the ninth day of Agile, my scrum master gave to me nine story points of slack time. Nice. Okay. <laughs> so he can go watch nine videos by Uncle Bob. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as we did making it. Stay tuned for number 10 coming up tomorrow. Until then. This is the Agile Uprising. Wishing you happy Agile days. On the ninth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me nine ladies dancing, eight men to milk it, seven swans to swimming, six geese getting it home, five golden rings, four calling bites, three French and two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree.